War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. That might be the most famous line from George Orwell's classic 1984. It's a powerful line that captures the kinds of lies that seem so obvious to us when we have some distance from them. And yet they've swayed millions of people to accept and even to participate in their oppression. Like a lot of people, I read 1984 for the first time when I was in high school. And if you read it, I don't know what your reaction was like, but that book devastated me. I grew up reading good, modern, Western literature, watching modern, Western movies. And what's the one thing that I could pretty much always count on in a good story? The good guy's gonna win at the end. The story might end differently than I expected it to, but the good guy's gonna win. He might have made some mistakes, he might suffer loss, even tragedy, but in the end, he always wins, right? And so most of 1984, that's why I'm expecting the book to end. Sure, it's this one guy who's under oppression, it's him against the world, he has nobody else with him, but that's okay. He was right, so he was going to win. There was nothing in my story experience to prepare me for how 1984 ended. Because he didn't win. He lost. And he wasn't, it wasn't just that he lost the external fight against his oppressors, he lost the internal fight too. They broke him. They brought him to the place where he not only accepted their oppression, but he believed their lies even though he knew they were lies. And they waited until that point when they had him back in their fold that they killed him. I finished that book and I went around telling everyone that was the most depressing book I'd ever read. But at the same time, I love 1984 and I don't know how many times I've gone back and reread it again. And I think one of the reasons that Orwell has such lasting popularity is because of how powerfully he did capture those lies that are so easy to see from a distance and yet so many people have fallen prey to. He was writing back in the 40s and yet he had the foresight to see like if we continue on this trajectory that I see, I'm worried that truth could be lost forever and we would have no hope of fighting against the lies. 
Have you ever felt that way, looking around at the world? Lies are rampant all around us. More and more, it seems like people's worldviews are based on nothing but lies, that that's the very foundation of the way they see everything. What hope does the truth have in a world like that? Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I have wondered that. I have thought like that. Some of you might think I sound a little like a conspiracy theorist so far. I am not saying that we live in a world just like Orwell's 1984. But that is what David is struggling with in our psalm this morning. A world that he looks around and it is filled with nothing but lies. So if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 12 and we'll read it together. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is a communal lament. A lot of the psalms we've been looking at in our summer series have been David-focused. David is experiencing this difficulty, and he's crying out to the Lord about it. But in this psalm, though, he's lamenting for all of Israel. He sees what's going on throughout the land. He sees his people oppressed. Specifically, he sees them oppressed by lies and flattery, people using their words to manipulate and gain dominance over each other. He sees all of this going on, and he's lamenting over the whole community and the circumstances it finds itself in. He says in verse 2, Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Everyone is lying all the time. Truth is nowhere to be found. He says their words are filled with flattery, but their hearts are filled with malice. And we might be tempted to think, well, is a little flattery really such a bad thing? Like, we all tell little white lies now and then. Like, we're just being polite. But these are more than just white lies. Because he goes on to explain their motivations in verse 4. Those who say 
with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? These people are filled with deceit, not because they're just being flattering. They're using that as an opportunity to prevail against their neighbors, to get a leg up on them. Everyone is dealing treacherously with each other for their own personal gain. David's painting a pretty bleak picture of Israelite society. And they're doing this with no fear of consequences at all. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? There are no consequences. I'm not going to face any repercussions for this. I know what I'm doing. I've got things under control. I can lie my way out of anything. I can manipulate everything the way that I want. David doesn't explicitly say it, but when he says, who is master over us, the implication is I am my own master. No one has power over me, authority over me. I can act with impunity. I'm my own master. And this isn't just a theoretical problem. There are real-world consequences to this. David's looking out, and people are being oppressed. They're groaning under the weight of these oppressive lies. I think that's something we can relate to. When you look around at politics and news, social media and the Internet, even sometimes the church as a whole. It can be easy to think with David, the godly are gone. The faithful have vanished. And we feel the weight of those lies, some of them more than others. When we hear about the fall of a church leader, we feel the weight of that. We hear about their lies and their flattery. And then we hear about what they're actually doing when no one's looking. And we groan when we see that, when we hear that, because we know that God's people are being misused and abuse that God's name is being impugned for one man's profit and pleasure. When we see lies on the news by both parties, we grieve over the fact that people who have some power and authority and can address issues seem to be more interested in using the issues for their own gain as opposed to actually trying to help people. We see the lies online and social media and know that there are people who are believing those lies, who are feeling the weight and the oppression of those lies and it's driving them to anxiety and depression and isolation. 
we're constantly surrounded by lies and we feel the weight of that. Even some of the sillier lies, like the, the lies we see in advertisements, like you will have the most amazing life you can ever imagine if you buy these shoes or drink this beer or even use this shampoo. We laugh at them, but I think the constant bombardment of them still weighs on us. And then when we think about the fact that there are people in this world who are so desperate for joy and fulfillment that they actually do look for it in those things. We are surrounded by a constant hum of lies that never goes away. Like the sound of the city that you don't notice until you go outside and it's gone. It's always there. We never escape it. And there's a weight to that even if we've learned to ignore it and to drown it out. It's oppressive. It's always there. It's always around us. It never, ever stops. And if that's not daunting enough on its own, the root of the problem goes deeper than that. These aren't just individual lies that are disconnected from each other, individual people just trying to make their own way in the world, to be their own masters. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And he's the ruler of this world. And his lie is still at work in all of our hearts. He is the epitome of a flatterer and one who speaks from a double heart so that he can prevail against others and become his own master. Deanna read for us earlier from Genesis chapter 3 where he first introduce that lie to humanity's heart. I know we, most of us have heard that a thousand times, but it's important for us to keep going back to it and see it for what it is because it has buried its roots so deeply in all of our hearts. We have to keep coming back to it and seeing those lies for what they are because that is the most oppressive lie that we all live under. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He questions God's goodness and his love. He who made you in his own image gave you dominion over the earth and provided every food you could possibly eat, a little literal paradise to live in, Does he really have your best interests in, heart, in mind? Has he actually provided what you need? You won't surely die. 
There will be no consequences. In fact, not only will you not die, you will become like God himself. You can be your own master, even. And that was a seductive lie, to become like God, not like him as he intended, as his image bearer, but to be like him in my own right. And she and Adam were both deceived by the same lie that the enemy himself believed, that they could replace God and take his place on the throne, that they could set themselves up as masters of their own world. And that's a ludicrous idea, the idea that we could actually like kill God and take his place. But as laughable as it is, we all believe it. And once Adam accepted that lie, it took root deep in all of our hearts. It's like a weed that you just can't kill because the roots go so deep and so spread out that no matter what you try, you just can't kill all of it and it keeps coming back. David talks about the poor being plundered and the needy groaning under the weight of these oppressive lies. And that's true of all oppressive lies, but it's never more true than of these. You will not surely die. Humanity has been left ravaged and plundered by that lie. They are lifeless and groaning under that oppression, even if they don't realize that's the source of it. It's left us groaning and needy. All of the other oppressive lies we see around us all the time, the lies that just never stop, they keep going, they all pale in comparison to this one. People are still trying to set themselves up as their own masters, their own gods, regardless of the cost to anyone else. And faced with all of that, it's easy to say with David, the godly is gone. The faithful have vanished. And David's cry there is a scary thought because it's a lonely thought. Like, how, what hope could I have against all of that? What hope could such little truth have against such pervasive and powerful lies? David is king. He has power and authority, but he knows on his own he can't do anything against this onslaught to his people. He recognizes that he's outmanned and outgunned. What could I possibly do on my own? But he knows he's not on his own. That's why he's crying out to God, save, O oh Lord. There's nothing we can do in this fight. We lost it. But you can save us, O oh Lord. And so he asks him in verse 3, Lord, cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Cut them off, Lord. Lord, you stop this. 
ease the burden of your people. And the Lord responds to David in verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God has not been blind to humanity's plight. He sees the oppression. He sees the poor plundered. He hears the groaning of the needy. And more than that, he is moved to action by it. The Lord promises David that the history of the world will not be one of unmitigated oppression forever. He will act. And when he does, he will provide the safety that his people have longed for. And the solution that he offers, the safety he provides, is found in verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The world and the devil are marked by their insincerity and their doublespeak, their lies and their flattery, but the words of the Lord are pure. There is no defect, no deceit, no insincerity in anything that he says. Seven times they've been refined. Seven is a number of completion and perfection in Scripture. And there is nothing lacking from what I have to say to you. There is nothing in there that is not from me. It is pure and refined. There is no truth lacking. There is no deceit to be found in it. We know that to be true. We know that God's word is true and it's pure. We know that it has the power to counteract and defeat the lies of the world and the enemy. We know all that. But practically speaking, do we believe it? Do we believe it all the time? Or in the face of the lies that are constantly bombarding us, do we find ourselves doubting either the truth or the power of his word? Because we are constantly being bombarded with lies. Lies about who he is. Is he really as good and as loving as he says? Does he really care for me in the way that I think I need? Is his way really what's best for me? Maybe even, is he actually there at all? And lies about ourselves. Do you actually believe all of this? Do you think he'll forgive you again? Do you think you can actually get over this sin, the thing that you keep coming back to over and over again? You think there's actual relief 
to be found here? Is he actually going to welcome you in heaven? Or is he going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. Wouldn't you be happier if you just did what you wanted for a change? Lies about his word. You've been praying for that person for years. You actually think that his word can change them at this point? We are God's people saved by Christ and new creations in him. But we're still susceptible to the lies of the enemy. So what do we do when we find ourselves like Adam and Eve listening to the lies and thinking we see the sense and the wisdom in them? Do we actually believe that God's pure word is the antidote to the poison of the enemy's lies. It's what God tells David the solution is. Think back to Adam and Eve again. They had everything they needed to resist and rebuke the enemy. Eve started out strong. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? No. God said, eat from all the trees of the garden, but don't eat from this tree. She responded appropriately the first time. No, this is what God says. This is what I know to be true. His words are true. But then she lost sight of what God had said. When the enemy whispered, you won't surely die. She should have responded with, yes, I will. God has said so. He is the source of life. He is the one who has provided all of this. He is the one who gave me life in the first place. If he says, I'll die, then yeah, I'll die. He knows, if anyone knows, how to avoid death. He is life. When the devil tempted her with, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. She should have countered with, no, no, I'm already like God. He created me in his image to bear his image. There is no way that disobeying him and breaking away from him and trying to take his place could ever make me more like him than he has already made me. Doing that could only shatter the image I already bear. Eve and Adam had what they needed to resist. They had the word that God had spoken to him, pure and refined and undefiled. But she lost sight of them in the face of the lies 
she succumbed and Adam followed her. And since then, all of humanity has been left under the weight of that oppressive lie. But that's not the end of the story, is it? God's pure word has already overcome the oppressive lies of the enemy. God saw that we were spiritually poor and plundered, that we were groaning under our need. And he said, I will now arise. I will place them in the safety that they long for. And so he sent his son, his pure word made flesh, to dwell among us, to be tempted in every way that we were tempted, but not believe the lies, to die the death that we deserved and draw us into the safety of his righteousness. Lovey referenced it earlier during worship, but Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect, he was tempted, yet without sin. And it's easy for us to think, well, yeah, but not really like us. He was God. It's different. But he was tempted in every way that we were. He was fully man. We read the account of his temptation earlier also. He was tempted just like Adam and Eve were tempted. But he never lost sight of God's word, if you notice that as Deanna was reading it. Every lie of the devils, he countered with the truth of what God had already said. When he was tempted with bread, he said, no. The word of the Lord is like pure food to me. That is what I need far more than any bread I could conjure up. When he tried to tempt him with power and glory that could be had so easily, especially compared with the road that was set before him, all he had to do was worship the master of the world. He said, no, the Lord is the only one who is worthy of worship. He has already given me authority. And I may have laid it aside, but I know that he will hand it back to me. And when the devil took him to the top of the temple and told him, throw himself down, because God has promised he'll send his angels. And you can be sure that he said the truth. Because isn't there a little part of you that wonders? you will not test the Lord your God. The enemy was trying to tempt Jesus, was tempting Jesus with the same things he tempted Adam and Eve with. Does God really 
love you? Has he really given you everything that you promised? You can have things on your own terms. And again and again and again, Jesus responded with the pure, refined words of God because he knew that even for himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, that God's word was the counter to the devil's lies. That they were his defense just as much as they are ours. Because God's word always overcomes the oppressive lies of the enemy. Jesus, the second Adam, prevailed where the first Adam had failed. He held fast the pure word of God and did not fall prey to the lies of the enemy. But as that passage in Hebrews tells us, his success, his victory, did not cause him to look on us with disdain, but with compassion and sympathy. He knows all too well what it's like to face the the bombardment of the devil's lies. David ends his psalm saying, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever on every side of the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Having secured his victory over the lies of the enemy, Jesus envelops his people in the safety of his righteousness. God's pure word completely and utterly defeated the lies that had oppressed his people for so long. And that doesn't mean that we don't still encounter those lies, that we're not still susceptible to believing those lies, but he has already defeated them for us. God's pure word made flesh. Some of you this morning may have never known the safety that Christ offers. You may have come in this morning having lived a life under the oppression of the lies of the enemy, been groaning for your needs and not knowing where safety lies. So let me just tell you this morning, there is real safety in Christ. He has defeated those lies for us. He is the only way to find relief from them. And some of you, many of you, know the power and the safety of God's word. But some of you might still be finding yourself back under the oppression of it, believing those lies again, even though you know them to be false. You just need to rest in the safety of Christ and his word. 
So I'm here to encourage you this morning. Christ has already defeated those lies for you. And when you're tempted to lose sight of that, to forget what he has said, when the enemy is bombarding you with his lies and you're groaning under the weight of them, you can run back to Christ and find relief. David warns on every side the wicked prowl. Or as Peter puts it, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But the Lord will save us. He will keep us and guard us. We live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with lies. And it's oppressive. And we groan under it. But the pure word of God has overcome those lies for us. And we have a sure and secure safety in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the word made flesh. God's pure word. Lord, you are our only safety and comfort in this world. And you have promised and comforted us that you have already overcome the world. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that and we, we run to you confident of that fact. Guard us, Lord.